0: Grace and peace to you all, and welcome to The Calvary Road with Pastor Sam Allen.
1: And so what we really have in the genealogy is a series of prophecies. He is telling us that the Messiah, the Savior, the the real deal, he would be the descendant of King David, and he would be the descendant of, a son of, Abraham. This is the guy, Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham.
0: With the new year already underway, we begin a new study in the book of Matthew. Now, if you've been with us for a while, you know that we tackle these books and studies verse by verse, as all scripture has been breathed by God. But you might ask, what can we learn from a genealogy? We'll sit back and listen as we begin in Matthew chapter 1.
1: How many of you, right after getting saved, after getting your first Bible, and if you got saved here, that first Bible would have been a New Testament, got all excited, gathered your family together or your friends or whoever and said, hey, let's read the Bible together. And, and you open it up and you read the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham begot Isaac. Isaac begot Jacob. Jacob begot Judah and his brothers. And you're like, oh my gosh, what's this all about? How strange it seems at first... That God would take this oh so important message and he would begin it with a genealogy. Now let's face it, even hearing your family's history or my family's history, if it's just a list of names, is about as boring as it gets. And these are names, for the most part, we can't even pronounce. So why did he pick the genealogy? Why would he start with such a thing? Well... I think a lot of people are confused by this, so we want to at least deal with that issue. He is presenting not just a genealogy, but he is presenting the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Now, don't imagine for a moment that Jesus Christ is Jesus' first and last or first and middle name. No, Jesus is his name. It comes from... The word Joshua, which was a very common name in that day, and if you take it back to its root, it's Yahshua. And in Jesus' day, there would be Joshua's or Yahshua's all over town. And so this Joshua, this Yahshua, has got to be separated out, as it were. He wants to make sure that we know this Jesus is different from the other Joshua's or Yahshua's of the community so he tells us he's not just Jesus, he is Christ. It's an official term. It means the Messiah, the Savior, the Anointed One. Now for a Gentile audience, it might not have meant anything. But to the Jewish audience that Matthew was originally written to, they were looking forward to the coming of Messiah, the Christ, the Savior. So he says, hey, this is the guy, Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now, if you just started studying the Bible again, that can be kind of exciting. You think, wow, his family was dysfunctional too. Two dads, uh, David and Abraham. Until you learn a little bit about the Bible and find out, well, this word son really just means descendant of. And David and Abraham lived in entirely different periods of history. But why does he choose to tell us this? It has to be significant. It has to be important. One other quick thing, and it's sort of a side note. Over the years, I've observed, and no doubt you've made the same observation, that you never hear anybody when they're angry or frustrated saying, Buddha Christ, or Muhammad Christ, or Krishna Christ. Now, we're told not to take the Lord's name in vain, of course. But I do hear a lot of people saying Jesus Christ. And they don't say it in the way we're reading. No, they're using it in vain, in hostility. But why isn't it Buddha Christ or Krishna Christ or Muhammad Christ? Because there was nothing to ever suggest, prophetically or otherwise, that they could have been the Christ. And that's really the point of this genealogy. It is prophetic proof of who Jesus is. Jesus warns us later in his teaching of Matthew 24, there would be many false Christ and many false prophets. So how can we know that we've connected with the true and living Christ, the real savior, the, the an actual Messiah? Well, there are over three hundred specific detailed prophecies related to the person and the work of Jesus Christ and uh, Peter Stoner, in his book, Science Speaks, gave us this illustration that is so important the the ch- the the potential or the possibility that just eight of those three hundred plus prophecies could have been fulfilled by chance. Well, it's 1 in 10 to the 17th power. Now, I don't know, it's hard for me to picture big numbers, you know. 1 in 10 to the 17th power. He came up with an illustration to tell us how big of a number that is. If you were to take the state of Texas, large state, you're aware, and you fill that thing 2 feet high with silver dollars, and, and you marked just one silver dollar, And you blindfolded a Texan. My friend Don Stewart, who I first heard this illustration, said, well, ordinarily, you don't need to blindfold a Texan. But in this case, you do. And he wanders through the state. And at some point, he reaches down and he picks up one of those silver dollars. He says, that's the same potential. That's the same possibility. That's the same statistical probability. That, that just eight of these prophecies could be fulfilled by chance. And so what we really have in the genealogy is a series of prophecies. He is telling us that the Messiah, the Savior, the, the real deal, he would be the descendant of King David. And he would be the descendant of, a son of, Abraham. Now it's interesting to note, and many of you who are students of scripture we'll have this down what was david's son most known for solomon he he was a king right you know that but what about what about abraham's son what was the notable incident in his life it's in genesis 22 for a hint anybody got it he was a sacrifice that's right some up here you see, he is giving us a prophetic picture from the very beginning that becomes clearer and clearer and clearer. So the genealogy of Jesus, his mission, the Christ, we'll look at the rest of the chapter next time. And in verse 21, it says, he will save his people from their sins That will be the heart and the the core of our next study. But that's what it means to be the Christ, to be the Messiah, to be the Savior. You have to be able to save people from their sins. And no one but Jesus ever claimed to be able to do such a thing. And certainly no one but Jesus ever came to do such a thing. Well, when he calls him the son of David, it takes us back to 2 Samuel chapter 7. And you don't have to go there, but... David had been walking with the Lord for some time. He'd had some wonderful victories and some serious, well, setbacks. But at this particular point, he had decided that it didn't seem right for him to live in this gorgeous palace while God was still dwelling in a tent. In the tabernacle. And so he tells Nathan the prophet, he says, I'm going to build God a house. I'm going to build him a nice temple made out of cedar. And and Nathan says, that sounds great, David. And then Nathan goes and that night, while he's sleeping, the Lord awakes him and says, listen, that's not going to work out. I want you to go back and tell David, No. And then God makes this amazing prophecy. He says, I'm going to build you a house. And he says, I'm going to give you a son. And he is going to have a kingdom that will never end. He is going to sit on a throne forever. Now, here's the deal. There's a principle in scripture, prophetic scripture, especially, of the near and far, or the local and universal, ful- universal fulfillment. Excuse me. And so, um, what happens is David, of course, has a son Solomon. And if you're familiar with the story, Solomon does build the first temple. But but he, God talked about a throne that would never end. Solomon came and went. He talked about a kingdom that would be established, and that kingdom would rule and reign forever. That kingdom, Solomon's, came and went. There's the greater fulfillment, the universal fulfillment. And that's really given to us in the person of Jesus. That's why Jesus is here identified with King David. You see, God said, I'm going to build, I'm gonna build a, a temple. And here's the wonderful teaching that we get in the New Testament. The Bible says, even though God dwelt in a tabernacle in the Old Testament and then in a temple... He now indwells the hearts and lives of every born-again Christian. It's going to be a strange day if I continue to mispronounce words like Christian even. And so you think a pastor could get that one right. But uh, in any case, in any case, God indwells each and every one of us. He has taken up permanent residence in you. And he's taken up permanent residence in me. So much so that we're told that we individually. And then of course, in another dynamic entirely, we corporately are the temple of the Holy Spirit. God indwells me and he indwells you if in fact you're born again. And in a special way, he inhabits the praises of his people. He he reveals himself as we worship him in wonderful and profound ways. Well, in any case, God says, I will. And whenever God says, I will, God does. And, and he tells David through Nathan, I'm going to make you and give you a kingdom and a throne that will last forever. Now, Isaiah chapter 9, and if you want, you can turn over to this one. It's um, back in your Old Testament. <laughs> if you're new to the study of scripture or you don't have an Old Testament, then you'll want to just listen in. But, but a very familiar Christmas passage, but I want you to see the context of it because David is promised a son who will be a king, who will establish a kingdom, who will be on the throne forever. And we read, and the emphasis is usually on the child portion here, unto us a child is born, and this is Isaiah 9, 6, unto us a son is given. The government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful. Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Now listen to this. Of the increase of His government and peace, there will be no end. Upon the throne of David and over His kingdom, to order and establish it with judgment and justice, from that time forward, even forever, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform it. And so what He's telling us is that this Messiah, this Savior... This redeemer, he will be a king. And and I want to just give you a few of the references in scripture. If you're a note taker, you can jot these down. We're not going to go to them or actually spend any time going through them. I just want you to hear them. In Psalm 45, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever and in Psalm 22 there's a question, who is this king of glory? The answer, the Lord strong and mighty, the Lord of hosts, he is the king of glory. Matthew chapter 2 verse 2 calls Jesus the king of the Jews. We also find a question in Matthew 27:11, are you the king of the Jews? And then we find nailed to his cross. Jesus, the King of the Jews. Isaiah four six calls Jesus the King of Israel. That's repeated for us in John's Gospel, chapter 1, verse 49. Psalm forty seven seven calls Jesus the King of the whole earth. And I want you to see this progression, see? First, he's just this mighty king, the King of glory. And then there's this revelation. He's the King of the Jews. He's the King of Israel. He's the King of the earth. In Isaiah 43:15, it gets even better because he's there called your king. And it's wonderful to know that Jesus is the king. That he is the king of the Jews, the king of Israel, that he's the king of all the earth. But the question becomes, are you submitted to him? Do you recognize him? Have you bowed the knee to him? He is then your king Matthew 21, 5 and John 12, 15 bear that out as well. Psalm 74, 12 becomes even more personal because he calls God, our Lord, our Savior Jesus, my King. So your King, that's one thing. My King, well, that's another thing. Isaiah thirty-three twenty-two 22 calls him our King. Our King. Revelation 15 says he is the King of... Of all the saints. Zechariah 9.9 reveals him as the lowly or the humble coming king. Behold, your king is coming to you lowly and humble, riding on the foal of an ass. Zechariah 9.9. 1 Timothy 6.15 reveals him as the king of kings. There's an interesting contrast. One, the lowly coming king. The other, the king of kings. Lord of lords. The one who will rule and reign forever and ever. How can he be both? He came the first time as a suffering servant. He comes the second time as a ruling sovereign. Jeremiah 10.10, and this is the last one I have for you. He is called the everlasting king, the true and living God. So when we read the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David we are reading about the Messiah who would be in the line of David, who would inherit the promises to David and fulfill the prophecies given concerning the son of David, the Messiah, the king. He's also called the son of Abraham. And if you're familiar with Abraham's story, and I know many of you are, perhaps some of you aren't, in Genesis 12, God appears to Abraham. And you need to know, Before God gets a hold of Abraham, he was just like anyone else. God didn't look around and say, man, there's a super saint. I think I'll do something with him and in him and through him. Abraham was just like anyone else. And that's really true for each and every one of us. If God's done wonderful things through your life, you need to remember that if God weren't working in and through you, you'd be just like anyone else. Even those people that you look at and think, man, what a mess their lives are, and look how they've messed them up. It's important to see, it's essential we see, that it was the grace of God that that caused him to call Abraham, that caused him to call David, that caused him to call you, and caused him to call me. Well. Abraham, we know, is the father of the faithful. And when God appears to Abraham, he says, Listen, I'm going to do some things for you and in you and through you. And it was all an unconditional covenant. He says, I will make you a great name. And certainly Abraham has that today. Three of the major world religions trace themselves back to Abraham. But he says, I'm going to make you a great name. I'm going to make of you a great nation. That nation becomes exceedingly important to our story as it continues. And then he says, I'm going to bless you. And I'm going to bless those who bless you. And curse those who curse you. But all of that isn't the most important thing that God has to say to Abraham. He says, in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. In you. And he's really talking about... In his seed, through his descendants. How is all the world blessed because Abraham was faithful? No. If you read the story carefully, you'll find that after God promises Abraham a son, at about age 75, Abraham waits a decade. You ever had a promise from God and you're sure that it's for you? And you're like, I know God's going to do this. And then a year goes by, and two, and five, and ten, and you're like, well... Let's see, I wonder, maybe he wants me to do something. And that's what Abraham began to think. Maybe he didn't mean it literally. Maybe it's not going to be me and Sarah. Maybe I need to take this whole matter into my own hands. And I would encourage you to read that story carefully. Begin at Genesis 12, read through 15, keep going through the, the next few chapters. And what you see is that Abraham begins as this man of great faith. He believed God and God accounted it to him for righteousness. And then after a while, that faith falters. And instead of waiting on the Lord, he takes things into his own hands. Well, about 24 years after the original initial promise, God appears to Abraham and says, guess what? And Abraham's like, hey, let Ishmael live before you. And he goes, no, I've got great news. You're going to have a kid. And he's, he's like, yeah, right. And it is not just that, you and Sarah. And, and when Abraham hears it, he laughs. And when Sarah hears it, she laughs. You know what they call the kid? Laughter. That, that's what Isaac means. He said, I want you every time you call his name. I want you not for guilt's sake, but, but for the amazement of a miraculous birth. I want you to call him laughter. I want you to remember how you, you, you laughed because it seemed so incredible. And then you laughed for joy because it came to pass. At a hundred years old, And I don't know, you know, 100-year-old guy having a kid, maybe doesn't seem that weird, but 90-year-old wife, see, that seems like you're kind of getting up there. I'm not saying 90's old for gals, I'm just saying for childbearing, perhaps. I'll never forget, not that long ago, we were with our pastor, Chuck Smith, and his wife, Kay, and... They have, her son had become a grandfather and she said, you know, it's not that weird being a great grandmother, but it feels very weird to be the mom of a grandfather. And uh, it's all the same thing, but it, it feels different, she said. And so, so in any case, 90 year old gal, 100 year old guy, they have a kid, they name him Isaac. And I want you to see something here. The son of David, the son of Abraham, Abraham begot Isaac. Now, it doesn't sound that exciting when you read it in Matthew. But when you read it back in Genesis, it's incredibly exciting. Why? Because it was the fulfillment of a promise of God. In your son Isaac, all these things will come to pass. I will bless those who bless you. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. See... Isaac was going to be the one. And he was born miraculously. It's sort of a picture of coming attractions, greater and more wonderful attractions. But you've got to see it. Abraham's faith first, then his failure, and then in chapter 21, the fulfillment. Why? Because God is faithful even when we're faithless. God is faithful even when we falter. And we've got to know that. Not, not so that we can say, well, maybe it won't matter what I do. No, it matters. Why? Sin always has consequence. And I tell you, as a professional, not, not pastor, sinner, as a professional sinner, because I have mastered it over the years, sin always causes pain and suffering. Not just in my life personally, but in the lives of those I care the most about, those people most closely connected to me My sin has greatly hurt other people. And listen, I share that with you only to make this point. Your sin does the same thing. And the bottom line is, Abraham suffered and others have suffered because of his unbelief. Nevertheless, God calls him the father of the faithful and the father of those who walk by faith. So Abraham begot Isaac, the child of promise, The miraculous birth. And then Isaac begat Jacob. Now, this becomes important, and that's there. Isaac begat Jacob. There's not much of a story there. It's just sort of, hey, that's what happens next. But it's important to note that it was prophesied in the book of Numbers and in other places, but Numbers 24, 17 specifically. And I guess I should read that one to you because since this becomes so important as we trace through. Numbers twenty four seventeen says, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob. A scepter shall rise out of Israel and batter the brow of Moab and destroy the sons of Tumult. Now, there are many other prophecies that tie Jesus to Jacob, but, but Jacob becomes a fascinating study for us for a variety of reasons, not the least of them being, he was a man that really didn't trust God. I mean, Abraham trusted him but had a faltering of his faith. Isaac, well, he had some real miraculous experiences with God as well. But, but Isaac produces th- this son, Jacob, who totally tries to take by force that which God would give him by grace. And his life story becomes an object lesson to us to just trust in the Lord, to rest in the Lord, to not try to make it happen, just let it happen. There are times God says, move, and we must. And there's times God says, wait, and we must.
0: A look at Jesus' family tree tells us so much. It proves Jesus is the promised Messiah, but if we dive even deeper and look at the lives of those men and women who were in his line, we learn so much about how God used them. Ordinary people like you and I, used by God in extraordinary ways. Join us next time for the conclusion of The King is Coming. The Calvary Road is a ministry of Calvary Chapel Chico
1: salvation in your son